Welcome to the NCAA Social Series Podcast. In today's episode, host Andy Katz is joined by NCAA Chief Medical Officer Brian Hainline and Associate Chief Medical Officer of Emory University Hospital, Colleen Kraft, to discuss the reality of what is going on in the world dealing with a pandemic and how it relates to college sports. Welcome everyone to an NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz, pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Hainline, the NCAA's Chief Medical Officer, as well as NCAA Coronavirus Advisory Panel member, Dr. Colleen Kraft, who is Associate Chief Medical Officer at Emory University, also an Associate Professor of Infectious Disease and an Associate Professor in the Department of Pathology at Emory University as well. Welcome both of you. It's our second edition of this social series, which I thought last week was incredibly educational and informative not just for student-athletes, NCAA staff members, NCAA membership, but really the greater good here in the United States as we try to figure all this out with your help. Dr. Hainline, let me start with you. What's the latest you're hearing as we're taping as to where things stand with COVID-19? Well, so like everyone else, there's a lot of information overload just on the airwaves, the TV, but the most important advice we're getting and, and updates are from the advisory panel. So Dr. Kraft is one of seven members and, and that's really important. But the other important thing is what we're hearing from the membership, Andy, because they they understand that we, we had to shut down in the winter and the spring sports, but now the questions are arising, well, what about the fall? When are we gonna be able to start working out? So, so we're hearing on the one hand, a lot of updates about what's happening with COVID-19 and, and we're relying very heavily on the advisory panel. And on the other hand, we're hearing questions and concerns and, and really from the membership, they, they just wanna help us, they want us to help them understand what the next steps really are. All right, so we're going to get to that in a moment, but uh, Dr. Kraft, you know, we're seeing as the days turn, more and more states are getting on board. Uh, it's not 50 states yet. Um, obviously, Georgia, where you are, has now come on board to stay-at-home policy, and student-athletes are all over the country. They're all over the world, but they're all over the country, and not every state has been in a uniform policy. So what's your advice for student-athletes, people in general, that might not be in a situation where their state has put down that strict stay-at-home policy. I think it's really important that individuals continue to try to keep themselves safe all of the time. And so I think one of the side effects that I hope from this outbreak is just good social hygiene. I think, uh, you know, we in general tend to not focus on hand hygiene. Uh, I actually just touched my face a minute ago, I realized. And so we don't uh, also do proper face hygiene where we're touching dirty things and then we touch our face. And so I think in general, just trying to keep yourself safe with those types of practices is really important no matter what time of year and really just going forward. You know, Dr. Hainline, I want to get to that main point you just brought up because this is a question that I've heard over the last week since we last convened here with so much discussion on the fall and the late summer. And now we saw Ohio State made its announcement that they're going to go online through the first part of the summer. So no students on campus. Everyone wants to know, what will be that threshold, that line where you can say, okay, now you can go back to working out with each other. Now you can go back to being on a field of play, on a basketball court. Now you can go back to potentially actually competing. What are, the, what are those markers that we're going to need to see before any of that starts to occur? Well, I am really trying to look deeply into my crystal ball to figure this out. I think that it's very difficult 
um, to even know if this is going to be a seasonal virus. I mean, these are definitely the things that even though we have our sort of nose to the grindstone, trying to take care of these patients, taking care of our healthcare workers, and obviously taking care of the community, that it's been very difficult to know whether or not, um, you know, what is that threshold? I mean, if we say, okay, there's no more real community cases or they're very minimal or they're very minimal hospitalized cases, what if we loosen these regulations again and then kind of create that community transmission again? So I think it's going to be kind of like dipping your toe in a cold pool and kind of wondering, you know, we'll kind of try to try to loosen things and then sort of see what happens, I think is going to be what we end up doing. As you've seen, we're not very coordinated as a country in creating social distancing. I think it's probably going to be the same returning to work. Some parts of the United States are returning to work or sports. Uh, some parts of the United States will do so sooner because they will have been less hard hit. Places like New York um, are going to be ahead of the rest of us in making these decisions because they're already in a very peak time. So, Dr. Hainline, if you can pick up on that, uh, because I'm sure you're hearing the same thing. What do you think medical professionals, university presidents are going to need to see before they allow their student athletes to have that next step, that, that release of some of the restrictions? Yeah, Andy, so it's, it's really two levels. One is a university president. If you look at the Ohio State, you have 50,000 students. And there are 700 student athletes. So first and foremost, the presidents are looking at the very large community. And these are people that are coming from all over the country, but really all over the world. And and to Dr. Kraft's point, you know, so say we have this under control, but then what is going to happen on a college campus so that if there is a new case, I think now we're so aware of what needs to be done that we could probably behave in a different manner where we isolate that individual, we understand who that person's uh, high level exposure contacts were, and, and then we do things that this country really wasn't prepared to do uh, you know, back in, in January. And I think within athletics, it's a microcosm. So you can take, say, a team and, and, and you look at the fall sports, you have two radically different examples. One is football where you have a group of 100 individuals who are closely congregating. There's a lot of physical contact and practices and so forth. And then you have another great fall sport, cross country, where you have individuals who are probably doing what they can do right now. They're running out in the open. There's there's natural social distancing. So in the sports community, it's going to be figured out, I think, a little bit differently than than the campus as a whole. But but I think the real hope is that by the time we do start re-socializing, reintegrating, that we'll have the tools in place so that when there is an, a, a re-emergence that it's happening at a real micro level and we can manage it much more aggressively and, and properly. You know, Dr. Kraft, we're seeing that, uh, you know, there's all these stories being written right now, creating this bubble like for the NBA potentially in one city to allow them to have their playoffs in the summer. And we've seen that on the college campuses, you know, it's hard to justify maybe only having student athletes on campus and no other part of the student body. Uh, So we don't know if that will occur, but how realistic is it at some point if we only had sort of a bubble created for athletics uh, where you could test those people and say, okay, this group, this population is clear so we can have some sort of competition or practice. 
Yeah, I think it'll be difficult. I mean, one of the things I was thinking as Dr. Hainline was was speaking was just that our diagnostic testing, by the time that we're going to be um, doing some of these sort of, uh, you know, kind of putting our putting ourselves um, in in sort of a um, kind of staged, you know, sort of reintroduction of, of the society to each other. I think our, our symptom monitoring and our diagnostic testing is really gonna help us a lot in this area. So I think we are gonna have a much lower threshold to, like we already said, quarantine or isolate people, test them, and then figure out if they can come back. And so I think that that's, that'll, that'll help, those principles are gonna really help guide us even then in the future. Dr. Hainline, how close are we to even more widespread testing to get to that point where we know who has it, who's, who's asymptomatic, and who's clean? Well, I, I, so the honest answer is I don't know. I think Dr. Kraft has a much better handle on really the emerging platforms and, and which are reliable, which are not. But, but I think when we're talking about testing, we may be looking at two different things concomitantly. One is serological testing, so we can understand who really may have an immunity to this condition. It, it may well be that there are a large number of college students. So these are our young adults who uh, may have contracted COVID-19, but only manifested with mild symptoms, but they may have a, a complete immunity to this. And so that's one part of the testing. So you understand who in the community is, is already protected. And then the other part is more rapid diagnostic testing that, that we've been talking about. We don't really understand yet the sensitivity and specificity of the really rapid diagnostic tests. But let's say by the time fall comes around, if those are reliable, I think those are the two platforms we would be thinking about. I, to I totally agree. I think that it, it's going to be both um, sort of looking at who has protection and if that can predict protection in social circumstances. And then these rapid tests, which we've actually started utilizing this week in our healthcare setting, I think that many of them in the past have lacked sensitivity and specificity, but because of the you know production of new uh, sort of uh, this very rapid testing, even just bringing it up in general, I mean, this is the fastest we've ever had a diagnostic for an emerging disease. And so all of a sudden now we have this test and we're um, going to be comparing it against all these other assays. I think we'll have a, a good sense of how helpful it is. You know, Dr. Kraft, if I could just follow up your, your background, you've dealt with Ebola before. Um, what are some comparisons from your personal experience uh, to what you had, uh, what you saw and to what we're going through now with COVID-19? Well, I've been thinking about that a lot because it's it was something that a small group of us at the institution that cared for these patients were undergoing what I feel like everybody is going through right now. And so while we were sort of in a, you know, sort of in a hole almost going through this experience, taking care of these critically ill patients that had a very contagious virus, you know, the rest of the world sort of went on and sometimes forgot that we even had patients in the case of of one of our patients that didn't identify themselves. There wasn't even anything worthy to talk about. And so it, this has been a lot different because rather than having a small cadre of people working on biocontainment that we could sort of make sure are kind of perfectly trained, we're now having to make sure like the whole society, right, all at once needs to understand these principles of high reliability principles to keep yourself safe, right? So the, the basic things that I already spoke about earlier, face hygiene, hand hygiene, you know, not trusting surfaces that you haven't cleaned. But now instead of having 40 people that we train really well to do that, we're having to train everybody, again, 
against the backdrop of fear and anxiety and distrust, and also against the backdrop of community transmission. So when we think a lot about healthcare transmission, when we think about sports teams transmissions, maybe in the future, it's gonna be very focused on the, the job of that person. Whereas this transmission can happen anywhere in the grocery store, in lots of different places. And so I think this is of a magnitude that we had feared could happen, but living through this, uh, it's not surprising sort of where we are as a country, a state, locally, a healthcare department, uh, healthcare uh, system, and then obviously even as a, a national sports sports group. Uh, uh, Dr. Halen, I want to start with, with you on this, and then Dr. Kraft, you can jump in. in. Um, to your point, Dr. Kraft, on uh, you know uh, how transferred. I mean, there's been so much discussion in the last day, two days, every hour on masks when we're in public, and we're hearing conflicting information as to whether or not we should wear it for ourselves, even just breathing, talking in a grocery store even if we're completely fine and, and not showing any signs of any kind of sickness. Uh, Dr. Hainline, where are you right now in terms of whether or not individuals should wear a mask when they're out in public in you know, these emergency situations or necessary situations in terms of going to the grocery store, going to the gas station, things that we have to do at this point? Well, it's interesting, Andy, because the, the wearing of the masks, I, I think it's a, it's a great metaphor for social responsibility. And, and so if I'm wearing a mask, and especially if I'm putting out a bandana or, or, or I have a, you know, a regular mask that I might use when I'm, I'm cleaning out the, the, the basement or something like that, that's really not going to protect me so much, but it's going to be protecting others. If I happen to cough or sneeze, at least it's a barrier. It's, a not, it's an imperfect barrier, but it's somewhat of a barrier. And so it, as we come to understand this more and more, and I, I remember actually even a few weeks ago having a conversation with Dr. Kraft, and she was describing how, how young people uh, can have minimal uh, and perhaps no symptoms, but they can carry a viral load that makes them contagious. And so especially for the young people out there who are interacting and they're in the grocery stores and and they're wearing a mask. I think it's 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 a social statement that I care about society, but also it's the CDC and others understanding that this really is highly infectious or highly contagious for people with mild symptoms. And the mask is just one other step to try to mitigate the spread of this condition. I really agree with that. I think that we've kind of come full circle even our in our healthcare system. One of the things I've been passionate about for the last five years since we cared for the patients with Ebola virus disease is the idea of healthcare innovation, is the idea of healthcare worker protection that's innovative in a sense of that it's actually created for healthcare workers. So a lot of what we wear in the hospital was created for other lines of work. Uh, you know, particulate filters were probably initially for people doing other types of chemical and particulate work rather than um, somebody in the healthcare that's trying to not get tuberculosis. And so I think one of the things that um, we feel like is lacking is there hasn't been a lot of funding or support, and I'm going to say this a million times over, but uh, you know, it's not sexy to think about funding and researching how to protect ourselves uh, in the healthcare system or in the community. I hope that actually changes a little bit after this outbreak. But I think one of the reasons there's been so much discord is that we don't have a lot of knowledge scientifically about if masks help or not. But I think where we've come, which is where Dr. Hainline just um, described, 
is that it's really about a psychological effect of protection. It's a symbol of I'm protecting myself, I'm protecting you, and that we're sort of in this together. And I think that, that that's where we've also changed to stop thinking about are people going to feel like they're a false sense of security? Are people going to still touch their face more because it bothers them? We've sort of let all that go, all of our concerns about it, and just said, you know, this is just something, this is where we are right now. We need to to uh, encourage people to feel like they have the power to actually do something about their health in the midst of this outbreak. Well, I can just tell you from being a reporter, I can't tell you how many times I've interviewed people and just inadvertently, just when I'm interviewing them, you get spit on just when they're talking. And, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, it happens. And so you can see how that could actually, at least in that sense, whether someone's got any symptoms or not, you prevent just any kind of saliva flying out of their mouth just when they're talking, even if it's a few feet away. Um, I've also talked to a number of athletes over the last week, Dr. Hainline. They're going shopping for their parents, uh, maybe for their elderly grandparents. Um, but they're out in the... Out in the in the in the populace getting the food uh and there's some questions okay the supply chain you know where is it coming from and also what do i do when the groceries come back these are things a lot of student athletes certainly didn't have to deal with because they were just getting their meal on campus what's your advice for how they should handle the groceries and, and maybe ease any fears of of where all the food is coming from yeah so there's multiple layers to that, and, and I, I think we can almost drive ourselves crazy. But but I think, it, you, you know, thinking about, well, is this virus going to – I mean, I remember when this first started off, and we were getting questions from staff, well, if, if these pens for the Final Four were made in China and they come from China, even though it's been a two-week delivery, is it safe to open them? So, you know, these were, were questions from a long time ago. But I think there's a common sense to all of this. And so – uh, one way of thinking about it, so it, it's when you're in the grocery store, you assume that potentially everyone there um, is contagious, and that's what the social distancing is about. But then you also look at the grocery store, and, and to Dr. Kraft's point, um, you know, when people have masks, we were concerned about them touching the masks and so forth. Uh, but look at the grocery store, because people are touching their masks with their bare hands, but even if it's not, if it's with their gloves, then they're picking up all the different products and comparing them. And so you, when you think of it from that point of view, the, the, the easiest thing to do, it seems to me, is that you assume that the, the products on their shelf may have been touched by someone who's contagious. And so when you're putting them away, you have your gloves on, you're worrying about the cart that you're pushing that may have been uh, held by uh, someone else who was potentially contagious. So, so how how do you work with that? Do you bring your own bags in, which which, which I do? And then when you take things home, there there's a way of of working with them. So you actually can disinfect the the the, the plastic packages and and so forth. And and for the the, the covered fruit that's that, that's there, you can actually wash that in soap and water. I mean. These are just sort of practical things that one can do, but I think we're in an age right now where we're assuming everything is is potentially uh, contagious, and then then hopefully we'll move to a, a different place. And I, I believe Dr. Kraft was was really speaking about that when our normal day to day hygiene will be so different that there's a new norm as a society we're behaving differently and. You know, there's a great example of that. And when, when I was training in medicine, it was right when the AIDS epidemic was beginning. 
And so we were interns and, you know, we had no idea what this new disease was and so forth. But, but the way things shifted, we now have what are called universal precautions. We just assume that all blood is infected. And it's radically improved how we do things in the healthcare system. And I, I think, and I would love to hear Dr. Craspew on this, how do we take that as a society with a, you know, a, a pandemic of influenza and it shifts our behavior as a society? Because that, that's what I think will be important going forward. I agree. I think that we will you know, definitely be changing our behaviors on that interacting sort of basis. I think about two people that I've seen recently working one at a pharmacy store who's wearing a mask, wearing gloves, and between every patron, she actually wipes down the surface. And so that's not, that doesn't seem over the top to me uh, at all. I think that seems quite, uh, she, she does it quite naturally. I've talked to her a couple of times, having seen her a couple of times. Uh, I also think that, uh, you know, people are standing farther away from each other uh, and people are more likely to be using the hand hygiene in the store. I actually favor a, a, a supermarket that obsessively has two people cleaning the carts as you walk in. So mm -hmm. they are the only ones that get the carts from outside. And when you walk in, they're wipe actively wiping them down in front of you and they don't let you take it from the general group. They actually wipe it down and hand it to you. And, you know, I have no idea what this is going to do to our profit margins and all this kind of stuff in terms of, you know, if that's something that can they can sustain. But what a great practice um, for a cart that's probably touched by 20 to 30 people a day, depending on how busy that store is. So I do think some of the ways that we approach uh, things that are public should change. Dr. Hainline, uh, a week ago, we spoke extensively on the mental health aspect of this and now we get uh, unemployment numbers that are through the roof, numbers we've never seen, uh, which certainly could weigh heavily on student athletes, college students, if a parent, both parents are now unemployed. Um, what advice would you have on that aspect if that mental health aspect will even weigh even more heavily on this current situation? Yeah, it's really, it's really difficult, Andy. And, and just before, um, uh, this meeting with with you and Dr. Kraft, I was on the call with the the three chairs of the Division Student Athlete Advisory Committee. So for Division One, Division Two, and Division Three, and they were all saying the same thing. This is really taking a toll on our mental health. And I think some of them they're starting to feel this personally. You have a relative who was who was infected or who became ill or or who died. You have parents who are now unemployed. And, and so the biggest plea we heard from them was, can you provide resources? And, and that's, that's what really has to happen. I think first and foremost is the resources have to be available. There has been a relaxation of the HIPAA laws so that we can do telemedicine in more creative ways and ways that we couldn't before, which include, you know, using FaceTime or WhatsApp or something like that. And so when those rules are relaxed, then you can have a, a, a sort of, uh, a, you know, video mental health conferencing. But, you know, something that Dr. Murthy said last week is, is, is also very important. You know, he, he was talking about compassion and isolation and loneliness. And, and, and one of the things that I think can help us during this time of crisis is to understand we're all in this together. We're all suffering at one level or another. This is touching every single one of us. And so it's the idea of how we sort of mobilize as a community. We have to take care of ourselves. We need the self-care. We're going to be putting out more and more tools on mental health for the, for the student athletes and for others. But it's also 
really sort of taking a different perspective, really a, a, a social or spiritual perspective that that this is a call to humanity and to help figure this out together. And I that that actually is something that is protective in and of itself for mental health symptoms and disorders. So Dr. Kraft, at the beginning of this conversation, of course, you said, you know, you don't have a crystal ball. None of us do. Those, especially in the medical community that we're looking to cannot predict it. We know that we have exact science in terms of a timeline. But there clearly seems like there are going to be different stages of a new normal. Um, as best as you can, I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but what do you think the first new normal could look like in either June or July or August? I think, that, yeah, it's, it's a little bit hard to doubt. The new normal just in society, not necessarily healthcare as a, as a microcosm. Well, I, I guess I'm going to take it different stages. First, when the lift comes up, that looks like. And then secondly, for a college athlete um, or a college student, uh, what could that new normal look like once we get at least into the summer? I'll, maybe I'll take the, the second part first. I do think that just as somebody that's not an elite athlete or a um, you know training athlete or a college athlete, I think that one of the things that we're all learning is how to do and prepare things a lot differently and a lot more by ourselves. And so I do think that doing more things, um, training and um, sort of preparing for different things is going to be a little bit more socially isolating in the future. Or I think that we will also be very, very stingy uh, about how we use, not stingy, but maybe be very uh, rigorous on how we use cleaning agents in our gyms and in our, in our community public areas. So I do think that that will be sort of the new norm after sort of everything is settled out, is that I do think that we will train and um, be different in, in, the, in the areas that we have close close confinement for lots of different reasons, even, even the healthcare system. I, I view um, that the, the first phase, I think, will, thankfully, if it comes in the summer, there's a lot of benefits to that, right? There's a lot of ways that we can sort of adjust to how we're going to clean, how we're going to interact, how we're going to socially distance in things that we did very differently before coronavirus um, and sort of practice that uh, I, I'm sure it'll, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about even simple things like service professions that, you know, maybe they they cut and color someone's hair at the same time. I think people will be, you know, wiping down things between each service, no matter what they're doing. And so I, I think that we're going to see a lot more of that in sports as well, that there's going to be more of a focus on the cleanliness of the of the area and, and cleaning, you know, even between uh, locker times and all that kind of stuff. I, I agree with Dr. Kraft, and we've seen some examples already. So if you look at the wrestling community, which was really a, a petri dish for potential infectious disease, especially uh, like uh, Staphylococcus aureus that was resistant to certain antibiotics, and the wrestling community really mobilized, and they took infectious disease precautions to a whole new level in terms of not only wiping down mats, but but the, the body checks beforehand, and then even fellow wrestlers calling out one another. And you can look at a condition completely unrelated to this, but concussion. And you've seen the culture change where now we understand that if you self-report concussion earlier, you're likely to return to play earlier. And now the athletes, rather than you know trying to hide concussion, the culture has shifted 
where you're calling out one another and say, hey, we're in this together. Don't hide this because it's not only going to hurt you, it's going to hurt me. And and I suspect there's there's going to be a real shift where the student athletes as a group, along with our athletic trainers, the team physicians, there's going to be a new way of looking out for one another, understanding, as Dr. Kraft said, this is the new norm. And and I think it's going to be done in a community-based manner. And, and, and sport can really be this subculture for the good where it says, this is how we need to really roll out being safe from an infectious disease point of view. So I'm optimistic about that. All right. So if you can both answer this question, and I know there is not one answer here. Um, and I'll start with you, Dr. Kraft, and end with you, Dr. Hainline, on this. The college football season starts at the end of August. What do you think, Dr. Kraft, must happen before that is even possible? I think that we need to be having minimal to none community transmission, that our hospitals are sort of back to normal functioning, normal census. You know, we may get a COVID patient or two, you know, a day or a week, but there's sort of a familiarity. You know, we kind of understand what's going to happen. We know how we're going to deal with it you know, um, sort of a, a real confidence in managing these people who are on the sick end. And then I think we also, I, I really loved what Dr. Hainline just talked about, which is I think we're going to be more effective at symptom monitoring. So I think we're going to, we're going to, you know, inc- that's going to be a part of every message. You're coming to a crowded stadium. Don't come if you're sick. You know, I think people will, will understand that better and try to self, you know, isolate prior to before, which is where we would sort of show up sick no matter where what we needed to do. And so I think those two things, sort of like the community focus on symptom monitoring and then the team focus on symptom monitoring. So, you know, we talked a little bit about testing, but it really starts with saying, I don't feel good today, so I probably shouldn't play today because I may transmit it. Again, the idea that your illness really kind of has to do with everybody together. And so you don't want to perpetuate that unnecessarily. Yeah, before you answer, Dr. Halen, I think the days of playing through it, you know, okay, I'm sick, but I can still go out. You know, the famous Michael Jordan, that game six, I think it was against the Jazz when he play, played with the fever. Like those days are over. If you are ill, you are not to come to the game, not to come to practice. And the coach, I would hope, and the, certainly the athletic trainer and medical professionals say, no, no, no. You are nowhere near this field of play if you're not well. Dr. Hainline, for you, what must happen before as the first major event, whether it's college football, college soccer, those things that start at the end of August, what must happen before those events can take place? So at a societal level, I I, I and others are going to take the lead of, of the experts like Dr. Kraft and the others on the advisory panel. So so let's say those conditions are are, are met. The other thing that's happening, and, and we've already had like four calls today, I spoke to a couple of uh, uh, football coaches and we met with the, the leadership of the Football Oversight Committee, the Football Rules Committee. So there's this whole transition. So it's not like football can just all of a sudden start in August because it's safe. There's, you know, we've missed the spring practice and, and then what's going to happen in the summer. So the other way we're looking at this, Andy, is is what's the legislative oversight of what's allowed and what's not allowed and can we be nimble in our in our in our thinking in terms of how we roll things out because you know there are two issues about starting fall football one is of course the great concern that covid-19 has to be under control and so we have to act in a in a, in a responsible and safe manner 
But the other is, I mean, football, uh, like a lot of other sports, ice hockey, wrestling, you know, even soccer, you know, they're aggressive, rugged contact sports. And you can't begin them with minimum preparation because we don't all of a sudden want to have a, a lot of uh, serious musculoskeletal injuries or that people don't know how to use their body properly and there are other untoward effects. So, so we're really looking right now in a lot of the what if scenarios. So what if we're ready to begin in August? What if we're ready to begin in September? What if uh, there's a different timeline? And, and so all of those have to be played out first at the societal level. But then I think we're going to be nimble in terms of, you know, how coaches can interact with their players and make certain that they're really ready, that they're acclimatized and, and safely. And, and so it's so a lot of moving parts, but we're actively engaged in, in all of the possible scenarios to make certain that if it can happen, it, it will happen and it, and it will happen safely. Appreciate it, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Colleen Kraft from Emory University, Dr. Brian Hainline, the NCAA's chief medical officer. This is our second NCAA social series. We will continue this, and you can go to ncaa.org slash COVID-19 for information on this incredibly important topic. <laughs>